This is Derek Wolf, just your average privileged white guy, being open-minded and learning. And I thought someone else might want to learn too. This is a show centered around social issues where each episode I listen to someone's story in the search of the truth. On today's episode, I interview Jason Gitchner. Jason is the senior legal counsel for the Tennessee Innocence Project. He is a veteran litigator who spent his career fighting for people in the courtroom. Today, he dedicates his pursuit to freeing the innocent. I invited Jason here to shine some light on their inspiring work and point out some issues with our current legal system. So here's Jason. And then when I graduated from college, you know, a lot of my friends were taking jobs as, as bankers and consultants and things like that. And that I knew that wasn't for me, but I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point. So I was like, well, I'll just go to law school and I'll figure it out from there. Um, and it really wasn't until uh, I was at law school that I got a better feel for what I wanted to do and kind of what my career would look like. Yeah. Um, so, but being a public defender, what route did you have to take to to take that course? Yeah, I mean, so I didn't um, I didn't go to law school thinking I wanted to be a public defender. In fact, my first year of law school, typically when you go to law school, where you work for the summer is is where you often end up working when you graduate. So most people will take a a summer clerkship at a firm, and that's the firm they end up going to work to. So I worked in New York my first summer, and I worked in Boston my second summer, thinking I was just going to go back up to the Northeast. And then um, my wife and I went to law school together and we realized by the time we got to our third year that um, she was my girlfriend at the time, but we wanted to be in the same place. We were probably going to end up getting married. And we hadn't really thought that through um, because she was from Nashville and wanted to stay in Nashville. And I had only worked in the Northeast so far and was planning on going back to the Northeast. And then third year of law school, I started working in a clinic where I was representing people charged with crimes. Um, you can do that as a third year law student. You can supervise, be supervised and represent people. And I loved it. Um, and I said, you know, this is, this is really what I want to do. So we just sort of made a deal that, all right, we'll stay in Nashville. I'll tell my parents I'm not moving back to the Northeast and you take a job at a law firm and I'll be a public defender. And that's pretty much what I did. And I, I worked at the National Public Defender's Office for 10 years before I left to go into private practice. That's interesting. So what was it about defending these people? You know, like, I think some people would just assume, well, that's really a, a, a difficult position to be in because you're just trying to get people out of trouble. Yeah, I mean, I never really saw it that way. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up with friends who got in trouble and people who had issues and that, I mean, that's never how I came at it. You know, I, I'm a big believer that you can make mistakes and you can do bad things and that doesn't make you a bad person. And candidly, as a law student, when I'm representing people, I'm not representing people that are committing violent crime or anything like that. You know, I'm representing kids from bad neighborhoods that got caught with drugs and yeah, you know, this would take us off on a whole different spin, but you know, I don't, I don't think that they should be prosecuted at all, let alone it matters to me whether they're guilty or innocent. So, you know, I enjoyed getting to know my clients. I enjoyed getting to know their families. Um, you know, I was representing this, I was representing a 16 year old girl when I was in law school and she was charged with shoplifting and she lived out in Madison and she was pregnant. And we had worked out a deal with the court that if she came once a week to a parenting class, they would dismiss the charge against her. So she had to get from Madison down to juvenile court in downtown Nashville every week um, to take this parenting class. And she didn't have a car. So I would just drive out to Madison every week and pick her up and we'd go downtown, go to juvenile court. She'd go into the parenting class and I would just sit outside with my books and study and then bring her home afterwards. And after like six weeks of doing this, the, the, teacher comes out after class one day and comes up to me and she says, you know, daddies are welcome too. I said, no, no, I'm her lawyer. I'm not, I'm not the, the daddy. She's like, oh, okay. So wow. after that, uh, I think my girlfriend drove her the next week. <laughs> I didn't want that to happen again. <laughs> That's really cool though, because I think, 
you know, you're, you're seeing the humanity in all of it and that these are actually people and they're not just cases. And, um, a comment that we both read recently in a paper, we had talked about, someone said that they were talking about people being soft on crime and that it wasn't that they were soft on crime is that they were tough on injustice. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just a, a beautiful thing to me. So that's, um, Man, that's just really admirable uh, a position to take. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. I don't, I, I really don't think there's much to it. I tend to think most people who are exposed to the criminal legal system and the folks that get caught up in it and prosecuted in it um, would have empathy for the vast majority of the people that are in that system. You know, it's easy to think about it as a concept of, crime is up and we have this many people incarcerated and we need to build more jails. And then you, you meet the actual people that are mm. stuck in this process and how they got there and, and why it happened to them and not you. And, and you realize that we have, we have bigger problems than, than what you might've first thought we had. Well, that's um, let's get into that. Then you mentioned, you know, when you talk about these cases, we're actually, we're talking about a human being. We're talking about someone's life. Recently, you guys, uh, the Tennessee Innocence Project, uh, exonerated or had the exoneration, if I'm saying that correctly, of Joyce Watkins. That's right. Can you tell us about her uh, and her case and um, the involvement that Tennessee Innocence Project had with that? Sure. So Joyce Watkins is the, the first black woman who's ever been exonerated in the state of Tennessee. And along with her boyfriend, Charlie Dunn, they served 27 years in prison for a rape and murder that they didn't commit. They were prosecuted in 1988 for um, something that had happened in 1987. They went to trial, and in 2015, Joyce paroled and got out. Charlie died in prison in 2015 before he was ever released. Uh, he was granted parole, but died of cancer before he ever got out. Joyce had been spending many, many years trying to get folks to help her because she had always proclaimed her innocence and, you know, she wanted to do what she could to clear her name and clear Charlie's name and let everybody know that, you know, what had happened to them was wrong. And I think it was in 2020, Joyce just showed up at the office at, at the Tennessee Innocence Project. And we have an intake fellow who's sort of the person who screens people when they come in. Um, we don't get a lot of walk-ins. Most people write us from prison. But Joyce walked in and um, a guy by the name of Thomas Swafford, who's a law student at UNC now, was our intake fellow at the time. And Joyce sat down with Thomas and just told her, told him her story. And Thomas was like, whoa, we need to help this lady. So at the time, you know, we started up as an organization, a full-time statewide nonprofit organization in 2019. And I didn't come on board as the senior legal counsel until last year. Um, so Jessica Van Dyke, who's our executive director, was wearing a lot of hats back then. You know, she was the executive director. She was the only lawyer. She was really involved with development and everything that comes with putting together a nonprofit. So we needed, I mean, frankly, we just needed more boots on the ground before we were ready to take that case and, and really help her. So Joyce's case, when I got on, I just sort of jumped on it because um, I heard the story. I knew what it was about. And I was like, I, I want to represent this lady. And we spent um, most of, of last year working on her case. It was one of the primary cases we worked on. And then we went to court in December and we had a hearing um, with the district attorney's office who was supporting our petition. And then in January, Joyce was officially exonerated and Charlie was officially exonerated and the rape and the murder convictions were vacated and all charges against them were dismissed. Yeah, that's incredible. Can you give us a little bit of detail about the case? Because I just wonder why this happens. You recommended that I read a book, uh, The Sun Does Shine, uh, which was the Anthony Ray Hinton story. Uh, and I recommend that to anybody out there listening, um, The Sun Does Shine. Uh, but it's so heartbreaking to hear the appeal process. Once these people are convicted, it's near impossible for anyone to take them serious. So I, did Joyce go through any of that, or what kind of roadblocks did she have in, in I guess, um, getting her freedom? Yeah. I mean, Joyce, 
went through, just in terms of the legal process that she had to move through before she ever got to us, she had a trial where she was convicted. Then there was a direct appeal and that went to the court of criminal appeals. And then that was denied by the Tennessee Supreme court. Then, so she was convicted in 1988 in 1994. She had a post conviction hearing where that's where you can raise constitutional issues and make an argument that your lawyer should have done things differently than they did. And that was unsuccessful. And that went to the court of criminal appeals and she was not granted relief there. Then in 2015, she filed a state habeas corpus petition uh, that didn't go anywhere. And then we picked up the litigation in 2021. But within those intervals, Joyce will tell you that she hired a series of lawyers to try and work her case. I mean, at the time when Joyce was prosecuted, she hired her lawyer. She didn't have an appointed attorney. Um, Joyce was 41 years old, had never been arrested in her life, and had been working at the same job for many, many years. Um, she owned her own home. So she was uh, a really successful and impressive woman in the late 1980s. Um, but she lost everything trying to fight this case and throughout the years trying to clear her name. She lost her home. She lost all her money. She lost her cars. She lost her clothes. You know, put aside the, the human consequences that she suffered. I'm just talking about financial right now. So she had to go through all of that legal process and work through a variety of attorneys before she ever got to us. And, you know, the really sad thing about her case is that Joyce and Charlie were convicted in 1988 because the medical examiner got it wrong. And we were able to come back last year and put on new science through a series of really good experts to show why they got it wrong, how they got it wrong, and how these people didn't commit the crime. But that could have all happened in 1988. You know, despite the fact that we put on new scientific evidence, there was plenty of old scientific evidence that it had it been properly considered back then, they would have never been convicted. I mean, the, the theory of the case, I mean, without getting too much in the weeds unless you want to, but Joyce and Charlie had picked up Joyce's great niece the night before from a family member's house in Kentucky. And the child had only been with them for a total of nine hours before Joyce brought her to the hospital. And when she arrived at the hospital, she had a head injury and she had a, a vaginal injury. And they didn't really know what happened at that point. There wasn't a good explanation for it. You know, Joyce and Charlie talked to the police multiple times without an attorney and said, "We literally, we picked her up. We brought her back. We saw that there was something wrong with her. We called her mom. And then in the morning, we brought her to the hospital. That's it. That's all that happened. Um, things really changed when the medical examiner conducted the autopsy and and came forward with an opinion that I've looked at the brain slides. And by looking at the brain slides, I can tell you that this is an injury that must have happened during the time period when the child was with Joyce and Charlie. There's no other explanation for it. Now, the way she came to that conclusion was by saying, I looked under the microscope and I didn't see any histiocytes in, in the brain cells. So histiocytes are a type of healing cell that we have in our body that when we start to heal, if you look under a microscope, sometimes you can see these cells. And if you see evidence of healing, that's important when you're trying to figure out dating of an injury, because if right. it started to heal, that tells you there's a, there's a certain period of time that has passed before these cells would arrive. So this doctor, who's the assistant medical examiner in Nashville at the time, gets up in front of the jury and says, I didn't see these cells. The healing process hadn't begun. This subdural hematoma must have happened while the child was with these two people. There's no other explanation. And then there was no response from the defense on that. They did not call a doctor to address whether that was right or wrong. So you put that evidence in front of a jury and, you know, jurors aren't doctors. They don't know what histiocytes are. I didn't know what histiocytes were till I started working on this case. And you believe the doctor, right? Because why wouldn't you believe the doctor? If the doctor says this injury had to have happened while the child was with these two people and there is no response to that, well, what do you do as a juror? Well, I, I listen to the medicine, I listen to the expert and people get convicted. And then when you think about how the process works after that, it goes up to the appellate court and the appellate court reviews what happened in the trial court so there's no new information at this point. They're just reviewing what happened on the trial level. And there's no other story 
to review. They only, there was only one side of it. So, you know, where this ends and, and what we were able to figure out is that when we had good, competent doctors look at this, you know, and the experts we had in this case, one was a pediatric neurologist from Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, and the other is the current chief medical examiner for the entire state of Tennessee. What they would both tell you is that histiocytes don't go to the brain. That's not a thing. It doesn't ever happen. So it doesn't matter when she looked for them, she would never see Uh them. And that was it. That was all of the science that the state came up with their dating theory on because there, there was nothing else to say that these people did it. And then when you looked further and you looked at some of the other tissue samples, particularly the vaginal slides, you saw a different type of cell in those slides called a macrophage, which is another type of healing cell. And the fact that those healing cells existed in those slides told us these injuries are older than nine hours, than 12 hours. They didn't happen when the child was with these two people. So the science falls apart. And then once the science falls apart, everything else starts to unravel. And this is, you know, what I call the, the perfect storm of what happens in, in wrongful convictions. It, it's never one thing, right? People always say, you know, was it, was it DNA? Was it the police lied? Was it the lawyer did a bad job? It, it's never one thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost always a collection of things that go wrong. And in, in this particular case, you have, at the heart of it, you have junk forensic science. And, and that's really driving the train. But what happens is that people get so laser focused on the science, which is wrong. And then that results in a bias for how they do everything else after that. So then the narrative changes. And these two people with no criminal record and full-time jobs are monsters or child molesters, you know. And then the jury's told that the Joyce destroyed evidence, which wasn't true, which, you know, in 2021, when we got the police file, because we did a public records request, we found out not only did Joyce not destroy evidence, but the evidence that the jury was told she destroyed was sitting in her house and the police never collected it. And it's documented in one of the reports. And that's not anything she ever knew. That's something she learned about 35 years later. That's crazy. So that's, you start to, you know, you you do an autopsy on these cases and it, it, it's very rarely one reason mm-hmm. why people get wrongfully convicted. It's usually a series of, of bad things that happen coming together. Yeah, when I was doing a little bit of research, I, it, it really was a, a mixed bag on, like you said, uh, that was a poor exam by the metal, medical examiner. Um, the Ray, Anthony Ray Hinton case was a poor ballistics um, review and also one that I saw that was very interesting is that there's also a lot of coerced false statements. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So one of the first things I always talk to people about when we're talking about false confessions, I, you know, I always ask people, do you think people confess to crimes they didn't do? Do you think that happens? And Frankly, I think most people are sophisticated enough now that a lot of people realize that this is a problem, but that's pretty recent that I think people have started to have that opinion. But there are a series of exonerations where people have been exonerated through DNA testing, right? So DNA is the gold standard. We know for a fact they didn't commit the crime. Someone else committed the crime. It's proven by DNA. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of those convictions where the person confessed to committing the crime. So we know for a fact it happens. We know that innocent people confess to things that they did not do. So then the question becomes, why did it happen and how did it happen? And the biggest thing that really affects these false confessions, I I think, is the way that the interrogation process goes. So it used to be, and it still is in some places, that interrogations aren't video or audio recorded. So we have no idea what's happening in that room. You know, somebody will be interrogated for two, three, four, five hours, 16, 17-year-old kid without their parents, without a lawyer. And it's not taped. It's not recorded. And then we're given a one-page typed-up statement saying, this is a summary of what we talked about, where the defendant confessed to the crime and the person signs it. And then, you know, you you start to find out of some things that happened in the room. You know, they they were yelled at. They were lied to. They were, you know, they were 
kept awake or kept from eating or kept from their parents or asked for a lawyer and didn't get one. And, and that's not to say that, that that's what's happening all the time. And that's not to say that there aren't plenty of people confessing to crimes who actually committed the crimes. But if you want to know why people are confessing to, to crimes they didn't commit, then you need to look at the tactics that go into them. I mean, just consider for a sec how you feel when you're driving down the road and you're speeding and you get pulled over by the police, right? When you see those blue lights on and they're coming up to the car to talk to you, how nervous you are. Everybody understands that, right? And when you're nervous, sometimes you say stupid things. Sometimes you say things that aren't true because you're nervous. Now imagine you're a 16-year-old kid sitting in a tiny room with two 45-year-old guys yelling at you about a murder that you didn't commit for five hours. You know, people make mistakes. People say things that aren't true. It, it is just a fact that it happens. Yeah, it's just an in intimidation factor for sure. And also that there were other people who are other cases where there are false con um, confessions or not confessions, but I guess false testimony to garner a better deal on their own. Um, and that was a, a part of the Anthony Ray Hinton case. Uh, no, actually just that movie, Just Mercy. Mm -hmm. um, who was the individual? Who was Denzel Washington in that movie? Do you remember that one? So I know that the book I've never, I've never actually watched Just Mercy. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah. You know, I, it, you know, that's all stuff that the Equal Justice Initiative does. And, you know, that's all the, the great work that they do over there. Um, so they've got a team of people representing wrongfully convicted folks. So what's the, does each state have their own innocence project? Is that how it works? Yeah, most do. And it, in some states, there's more than one and they can manifest a few different ways. Sometimes they're like us, they're standalone nonprofits. Other times they're, um, they work out of a legal clinic, out of a law school. And then sometimes they're part of uh, a public defender's organization, be it either statewide or county or district wide. Now, there is a larger innocence network that we're all a part of, so we can all work together and collaborate and, and share knowledge and information. So we all work pretty closely with each other. So like if I'm taking up a case that has a scientific issue that I'm not familiar with, or it's something that's new to me, you know, we have all these great resources of phenomenal lawyers around the country doing this work that we can reach out to. And we just, you know, we were just in Phoenix a couple weeks ago for the Innocence Network conference, which was most of the lawyers and a lot of the staff of people doing wrongful conviction work around the country, plus probably about 200 exonerees were there as well. And we were all there together and it, you know, it was a pretty phenomenal, inspiring place to be. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing that there's so many people working for this great cause, which brings me to my next question is really the resources. So Joyce it sounded like she had the benefit of um, having money to be able to purchase, not purchase, but hire a good lawyer. I know that uh, a lot of people don't have the money to hire a good lawyer, so they get what's called an indigent lawyer. And in the case of a, uh, a homicide, what does how does the court decide a lawyer? What kind of resources does someone get to defend themselves, especially in the case of a homicide or a death? So in, in Tennessee, the way it works is that if you're charged with a crime and you can't afford counsel in the jurisdiction you're in, the, the first thing that will happen is typically you'll be assigned a public defender. And in Nashville, for instance, they have a wonderful public defender's office. So folks who need a public defender in Nashville, most of the time get really good lawyers who are, who care about what they do, who work hard, who are passionate. Now they're overworked. Um, but, but as a whole, good lawyers care about their clients, want to help them. I, I can't speak to other places around Tennessee if the public defender's offices work as well as they do in Nashville. But in Nashville, if you have a public defender, you're probably going to have a good lawyer. If there's a conflict with the public defender's office, you'll get appointed counsel, which, which is just a private attorney that has agreed to accept appointments from the court to represent indigent folks. And there are two major problems that come with the way we do business for appointing counsel, particularly on these really serious cases like you're asking about. And they have to do both with training and resources. So 
there's not really any training that's available. You know, if you can be appointed on a murder case and there's no rules that say you need to have watched this many hours in court or worked on this many cases or second chaired another lawyer this many times. You know, people every week in Nashville are getting appointed to really serious crimes and not just murder cases, you know, B felony drug cases and robbery cases and, you know, whatever it is, um, who don't have a whole lot of training and probably haven't been practicing all that long. The other real problem is the resource problem, which is the way we pay attorneys to do indigent defense work on an appointed basis in Tennessee is that most of the time your work is capped at $1,000. In certain exceptions, you can get up to $2,000. But that's pretty much all the money that's available to work these cases. And, th and that's both on the trial level and on the appellate level. So if you get appointed to represent somebody on a murder case and you're just out there on your own doing this and you don't know how to do it and say it's a complicated murder case that's got all sorts of medical issues that you don't understand or an arson case where you have to learn about fire science, right? You would have to spend hundreds and hundreds of hours just to even be competent to give that person a good defense. Whether they're guilty or innocent, it doesn't matter. It, you know, that's the amount of time it would take you to investigate, to talk to witnesses, to learn what you need to learn to effectively represent somebody, to spend the time you need to spend with your client. So if an attorney is getting paid $1,000 to work hundreds and hundreds of hours on a case, one of two things happens. Either you have really good people that want to do a good job and represent their client and they say, look, it's ridiculous that I'm only being paid this amount of money to work this hard on something this important, but I'm not going to let that get in the way of me doing a good job for this person. So those people put in the work and they work really hard and they try really hard and they're basically doing it for free. So that's option number one. Option number two is people have these cases and for good reasons or bad reasons, they make the decision that, you know what, I need to put food on my table and I can't devote hundreds and hundreds, a thousand hours to a case that I'm not getting paid to work on. So they don't work on it. And experts aren't hired. Witnesses aren't spoken to. The client isn't spent time with. And they go to trial and the defense is bad. And sometimes it's because the lawyers are just not trying and don't care and shouldn't be in this business. A lot of times it's because there's good people that are being confronted with these decisions of, look, I can go out and work cases where I'm getting paid and pay my mortgage, or I can do this for free. So the system is set up in a way that if you're poor and you have appointed counsel, they're either doing it for you for free or they're not doing it at all. And the result of that is that you get these terrible outcomes and it's one of the big reasons that we have wrongful convictions. You know, there, there are a lot of cases we work on and, you know, that process continues. So you get convicted, you now have an appeal and there's another $1,000 in play, but that's not nearly enough money to do the appropriate work or for the post-conviction. So by the time someone gets to us, they've been in prison for 15, 20 years. A lot of the cases we look at that person never even had somebody in the last 15 or 20 years put in the appropriate work to effectively represent that individual and defend the case. So you have innocent people that get, you know, everybody's like, well, why does it take so long? Well, I mean, that's why it takes so long. There, there are all these steps in the legal process, and most of the folks we see, unfortunately, didn't have competent representation up until the point that they get to us. Now, sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes they had really good lawyers and it just turned out poorly. But a lot of times things just didn't go right before. And then trying to go back 20 years later and re-interview witnesses and, and reconstruct what happened is really challenging. And, and sometimes that puts us in a position where, you know, we might really believe that somebody is innocent, but it's just factually impossible to go back and investigate the case because all of the evidence has been destroyed or the witnesses have died. And 
I mean, those are heartbreaking situations when, when folks never really had somebody doing the work for them. And then when somebody wants to do the work, you can't do it because the evidence isn't there anymore. And that's a realistic problem that we deal with because of the way that the system is set up and because of the resources that are allocated to represent people. So you mentioned $1,000 for a murder case. I, I swear that that's the thing that I read about in the 1980s. Is it possible that that number in, hasn't increased in, in quite some time? Oh, it hasn't increased. I mean, I was probably, I don't know how many years ago it was, maybe five, six years ago. I was, um, I was counseled to the state task force on indigent representation where we talked about upping the pay and upping the resources and, and, you know, putting people in better situations when they represent folks. And I mean, it seemed like everybody was in favor of it and on board with it. Everybody we talked to, you know, but it, it didn't go anywhere. It hadn't changed. Yeah. That that's interesting. I, that, that the number has never moved. I, you know, well, and so uh, you said you were on a, an indigent task force. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a state task force that had been put together to basically make recommendations to the General Assembly on, on ways we can do indigent defense better in Tennessee. And there have been a few of these that have happened in the last 20 years. So the, it's a combination of defense attorneys, prosecutors, private attorneys, civil attorneys, judges that get together, go around the state, listen to people, and then prepare a document saying, these are the way we can do indigent defense better, send it to the General Assembly, ask them to make changes. So that happened. Um, most of the things that were recommended haven't really moved. And, you know, one of the big issues was changing the rate of pay for appointed counsel, increasing training for appointed counsel. And it's still something that we desperately need in our state and would result in fewer wrongful convictions, would result in better representation across the board, resulting in people being in jail for less time than they are, saving everybody money. I mean, it's a win-win. You know, we have we have a very short-sighted approach, in my opinion, to the way we do criminal justice issues. And this is one specific area where I feel like we have a short-sighted approach. If if people were better represented on the front end, if you're just looking at from a money and an efficiency standpoint, we would save a lot of money. The process would be more efficient. It, it's better for everybody. But we don't do that. So we keep people locked up longer and that costs money. And then we build more jails and we continue to not adequately fund the folks that are defending individuals that are charged with crimes. And, and, and the same problems will continue to grow. If we don't improve the representation on the front end, we're just going to keep locking up more people and we're just going to keep building more jails. Yeah. And I'm heck, that makes a lot of sense. Cause I was really curious to make a point of why is this important to everyone else? If someone, someone out there listening, who's never had a brush with the law, they don't have any family members, you know, why, why do I care? You know, if someone's committing crime out there, well, you know, then lock them up kind of attitude. And, and I, I, I'm sure anybody wouldn't want anyone who is innocent per se. Um, but there is this kind of apathy towards the criminal justice system, I think. And what we were talking about earlier is, um, you know, what people thought about it and, I think they do think that it's working as intended. Yeah. And what people need to remember is that our system is run by humans and anything that is run by humans, there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be errors. And just when we're talking about the question of innocence, you can acknowledge that most of the time, the people who are getting convicted of crimes are guilty. And, and that can be true. But it can still also be true that mistakes are being made. I mean, let's put aside, you know, when people intentionally do stuff or lie or cheat or steal or any of that. Mistakes are being made and people are being wrongfully convicted. And you can have a system where the conviction rate is, let's just say, 97% of guilty people. If there are 3% of innocent people that are sitting in prison, well, how big of a problem is that? So at any time in the state of Tennessee, there are about... 30,000 people that are locked up or, or serving some sort of sentence in some capacity. And 
there have been studies that have been done on how many people are wrongfully convicted. And we can, we can get into the reasons if you want to, but it's a hard question to answer what the percentage of people who are wrongfully convicted are for a bunch of different reasons. But I, I think on the most conservative end, most people would agree that that number is at least 1%, right? So there there's no system that's run by humans where you could say that 100% of the time we get it right. There's a rate of error of at least 1%. There's uh, other studies that have been done, one by the University of Pennsylvania, one by the University of Michigan, where the wrongful conviction percentage was found to be up to 6%. There's another one that was, you know, it was about 2.8%. So let's just take that one. Let's just take 2.8% for a moment and say, if 2.8% of the time we're getting it wrong in the state of Tennessee. Well, from a percentage wise, you know, that that's pretty good, right? 97.8% of the time we're getting it correct and guilty people are convicted and, and, and being punished for the crimes they committed. You know, whether, whether you, whatever you think of punishment, whatever you think of sentencing, what's right, what's wrong, how we should handle that in terms of just getting it right, guilty people versus innocent people, we might be getting it right close to 98% of the time. But that other 2.8% of the time, when I told you that we have 30,000 people that are serving a sentence in the state of Tennessee, that means we have 690 people sitting in prison for crimes that they didn't commit. Now, that's a real problem. So these aren't mutually exclusive issues. People can have the opinion that most of the time guilty people are getting convicted, and, th and that's fine. But that doesn't change the fact that there's probably 700 or more innocent people that are locked up in our state right now. And that's something people should know and something people should care about. And when you take into account that what's, once somebody gets through their appellate process and their post-conviction process, they're not constitutionally entitled to an attorney anymore. So now you've got this large population of people that are sitting in prison for something that they didn't do. And they don't have the right to counsel. If you've been in prison for 15 years, you probably can't afford counsel. So what are your options at that point? You know, you can hire a lawyer, um, and, and there are some excellent lawyers that do post-conviction work and represent people in this space. Uh, but like I was saying, most of these folks, they don't have the money to hire a lawyer. So what do you do? At that point, you know, that's where we fill the gap. But we're the only statewide organization doing innocence work. And we have three full-time lawyers to cover the entire state of Tennessee. And, you know, the numbers I was just telling you, I think it's a fair estimate that there's 700 innocent people locked up right now. And because these cases are so big and have gone on for so many years and they involve having to reinvestigate something that's 15, 20 years old, we can only do so many at a time. You know, we can take 12, 15 cases at a time, maybe. So you have this huge population of folks that are just not served and don't have the ability to get a lawyer to help them. And we've only been around in our capacity since 2019. Before us, there was a clinic that ran out of the University of Tennessee that ended in 2018, but it, it wasn't a statewide clinic. It didn't, it didn't reach people in Memphis. And We've been on the ground since 2019, and, and you can already see the numbers that are making a difference in terms of exonerations and people who are being cleared of crimes they didn't commit because, you know, Tennessee now has a full-time statewide organization doing this work. I mean, we've had three exonerations in Nashville alone in the last six months. You know, prior to, I mean, since 1989 in the state of Tennessee, there's only been 28 exonerations. And we've had three in the last six months. And, you know, I'm hoping there's there's some others that are knocking on the door. What what has brought that increase? Have there been some changes internally? I mean, the biggest increase, I think, has been the fact that the Tennessee Innocence Project is on the ground working these cases statewide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a situation in Nashville right now where there's a conviction review unit in the district attorney's office that that takes wrongful convictions seriously. And we've worked together now on three cases 
where we've jointly gone back into court. And remember, this is the same office that prosecuted these people and sent them to prison. We've gone back in together to tell the court this was wrong. These people are innocent and they need to be exonerated. And, you know, that's a huge deal. And I, I, it, I tell anybody, any prosecutor around the state who, who is interested in hearing it, that conviction review units are a really good thing. And we welcome the opportunity to work with prosecutors on these cases in a collaborative fashion. And, you know, what I always tell folks is that we're, we're different in terms of what we're doing in our representation. You know, the agreement we have at the Tennessee Innocence Project is that we only represent people who are factually innocent. You know, we have to believe you're innocent and we have to believe we can prove it. And the agreement we have with our clients is that if there's compelling evidence that you are not innocent, then we have to withdraw and we can't represent you. And, and that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have great lawyers fighting for them. It's just not the space that we fill. So because that's the way we work, it allows us to collaborate with prosecutors in a very transparent fashion. So the agreement we have to make with our clients is that, look, if you are innocent and we believe you're innocent, you're saying you're innocent, we need to be able to have an open conversation with, with prosecutors where we can share information and we do everything we can to make it, it the least it can be adversarial, the better, right? We don't need to be fighting with each other. We need to be collaborating with each other because we, we should all want the same thing. If the person mm -hmm. is innocent, we should all want to find that. We should all want to do something about that. So this allows for an opportunity to work together on these cases in a way to get the right, to get to the right place. And, you know, if you acknowledge that mistakes are made in any system just like this one, then we got to find them and we got to do something about them. And I would much prefer that we didn't have to go to court and, and butt heads and fight about every little thing that we could sit down in our office and talk to a bunch of doctors and experts and figure this out and then go into court together and say, yeah, it was wrong. We need to fix it. So let's pause here and I'd like to share some interesting numbers and stats. As of 2021, there were 68 organizations operating in all 50 U.S. states. Since 1989, there have been a total of 3,087 exonerations in the United States. That amounts to more than 27,000 years lost. Dozens of defendants exonerated served more than 25 years in prisons for crimes they did not commit. Due to a false witness account, which was coerced by police, the longest sentence to be served prior to exoneration was Ricky Jackson for 39 years, which part of that was spent on death row. Of these exonerations, let's go over the reasons they were convicted in the first place. You know, the most common reason are false eyewitness accounts where the accused are incorrectly identified by the viewers of a crime at 70%. And studies have shown that racial bias is a major factor. One such study by Samuel Gross, a University of Michigan law professor and senior editor and co-founder of the National Registry of Exonerations, found that though sexual assaults by black men on white women are a small minority of all sexual assaults, they comprise half of all sexual assaults with eyewitness misidentification. Other reasons? 52% of wrongful convictions have resulted from the misapplication of forensic science. 26% of them were coerced into making false confessions. 17% were caused by false testimonies by such as a snitch or an informant, you know, someone who could potentially get a better deal to have reduced time. These percentages add up to more than 100% because each case may have multiple causes. So of these 3,087 exonerees, 47% were black. And black exonerees spend 45% more time wrongfully incarcerated than white exonerees. And 80% of all exonerees cannot even afford counsel. The most common type of crime to be exonerated from is murder followed by sexual assault and drug crimes. So what happens after they're exonerated? There's a federal standard to con compensate those who are wrongfully convicted, which is a minimum of 50000 per year of incarceration, plus additional amount if any of that was spent on death row. But each state can do their own thing. For example, Texas gives 80000 per year 
And with an average of five and a half years lost per exonerated person in Texas, that state's payment averages almost half a million dollars for each person exonerated. In 2018, Texas exonerated 16 cases, which means the state paid out approximately $7 million in that year alone. But on the other hand, Louisiana, for example, offers a maximum of only $250,000 paid out over 10 years. So why is this happening? As we mentioned earlier, 80% of all exonerees cannot afford counsel. That means they got a public defender. Public defenders suffer from massive, unmanageable caseloads, and they're often chronically underfunded, meaning that they are unable to conduct thorough investigations. The American Bar Association urges lawyers to take a maximum of 150 cases per year. But it's incredibly common for public defenders to exceed that amount, and some take on as many as 600 cases per year. So what does the big picture look like? Between 2 and 10% of convicted individuals in U.S. prisons are innocent, according to the 2019 annual report done by the National Registry of Exonerations. And with the world's largest prison population of 2 million, that could be as many as 200,000 innocent people. Since 1976, more than 7,800 defendants have been sentenced to death, and of these, more than 1,500 have been executed, while only 187 people who were sentenced to death have been exonerated. Samuel Gross's paper published in 2014 estimated that 4.1% of people on death row are innocent, but only 1.8% have been exonerated. If those numbers are correct, since 1972, the United States has executed at least 30 innocent human beings. Well, to have all these resources and to have all these lawyers, who is who's footing the bill for all this? Where did this uh, Where did this all start? So we're. I mean, we are 100% a nonprofit. So our funding comes from a, a couple different places. The majority of it comes from people who believe in the work we're doing and support us and donate to our organization. Now, we're fortunate enough that we have um, some grants that we get as well. We got a, we specifically got a grant from the Department of Justice to work on collaborative justice with the Conviction Review Unit at the District Attorney's Office in Nashville because the Department of Justice, you know, the law enforcement arm of the federal government, recognizes that this is a really good thing. And, and more defense attorneys and prosecutors should be collaborating on wrongful convictions cases. But the majority of our money it just comes from people who believe in the work that we're doing and support us. And you mentioned the federal government gives grants. How long has the federal government been involved with Innocence Projects? So, I mean, the federal government has been providing grants in this space for a good period of time. Um, what I can tell you is that this is the first year where, where we've been able to get one and we're, we're thrilled and we're grateful for it. Um, but, you know, the way I'm not an expert on federal grants and, and how you get them. You know, we have a development person that, that's really a lot smarter at that stuff than I am. But, it, you know, it's my hope that if we continue to live up to what's being asked of us in that grant, which is to collaborate with the district attorney's office on these cases to, to find wrongfully convicted people and exonerate them, that they'll continue to support us. And I, I would like nothing more than to expand that to other places in Tennessee, to Memphis, to Knoxville, to Chattanooga, to be collaborating directly with prosecutors in those offices who are conducting their own independent investigation and audits of convictions in their offices because you know their job is not to put people in jail their job is to do what's right and to do what's just and if a person has committed a crime and they're guilty and they prosecute them and there are consequences to that fine but if somebody has been wrongfully prosecuted for something they didn't do then it's not the job of the prosecutor to defend that wrongful conviction it's the job of the prosecutor to do what's right and to do what's just, which is why we need smart, empathetic people in those roles across the state of Tennessee who, who remember what their job is and are interested in working in this space because it only speaks to the strength of a prosecutor's office or a district attorney's office if they recognize that this is an imperfect system and they work just as hard 
to fix wrongful convictions and do something about them as they do to get people convicted who are guilty. Right, to do the right thing. Yeah. There's a case uh, on the, well, a, a man that's about to be executed, Oscar Smith, mm-hmm. um, for a lethal injection. And I, I mean, it's, it seems like a very interesting case because they, the little bit that I read about it was that they found a handprint that was a bloody handprint that was missing two fingers, which he was missing two fingers. But there's also evidence now that there was uh, no DNA, his DNA on the gun. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know how much you know about that case, but how does that case kind of mirror a lot of the the cases that you see? I don't know enough about his case that I, that I feel like I could competently speak to the evidence and how it might mirror stuff that we do. I can tell you that the the DNA motion that they recently filed to do DNA testing it is is something it, that's a statute that we work with a lot. You know, there's a law in the state of Tennessee that allows you to go back in certain circumstances and, and test evidence for DNA to see if it would be exculpatory. And that was one of the tools that was used by his attorneys in that case. He's represented by the the Capital Habeas Unit at the Federal Defender's Office here in Nashville, which is, you know, I, I'd put them up against any law firm in the country. I mean, the lawyers that are, are representing him are as good as they get. So, you know, I, I don't know enough about the facts of that case where I feel like I could speak to it specifically, but what I can tell you is that um, that man has phenomenal lawyers who really care about their clients who are fighting hard for him. And, you know, I know that that they've been on a roller coaster ride this week, given that that execution was called off at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I also know it means they'll, they'll put their heads back down and get back to work. Yeah. Well, earlier you were talking about the uh, appeals process and, and just the court system in general, like, I guess it, I've read that the court system is kind of set up for more of expediency than than per se justice. Judges have case counts. Uh, the public defenders are given those uh, cases by the judge. They want to work with the judge. You don't want to make the judge mad. You know what? What can you tell us about how that system works, the dynamics of it, and 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 maybe even if there's an issue with it pointed out. So. The way the system works in Tennessee is that if people were not pleading guilty and settling cases all the time, the system would collapse unto itself. You know, I want to say that it's north of 98% of criminal cases are are pled out in Tennessee. Uh, it might be higher than that, for all I know. But take Nashville, for instance. Nashville has six criminal courts, which have the ability to hear a jury trial, and typically each of those courts would hear, if there was a jury trial, would hear one a week. And they have non-jury weeks, right? There's no there's no jury trials during Christmas. There's no jury trials, you know, during New Year's. So there's weeks of the year when trials aren't happening. So, you know, let's say that there are 40, 45 weeks of the year where there's potentially a jury trial that could happen. There's only six courts available. So, you know, do the math, six times 40, six times 45. I mean, I... I don't know what that is. I went to law school because I'm not good at math, but it's not a very big number. And there are, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people being prosecuted in Nashville. So if everybody stood up at once and said, I demand a jury trial, the system would collapse. It, it It is not prepared to take that on. So as a result of that, because the system requires this high level of guilty pleas to be able to function, you know, it, it's constructed in a way where, where people plead guilty and it's just the decision they make. And unfortunately, um, poor people are in a worse situation because of the way things like bail work. And they're confronted with choices to plead guilty to things that they might not want to plead guilty to because they've got to make rational decisions about their families and their lives that have nothing to do with whether they're guilty or innocent. And what do you think about the argument that's been made about plea bargainings being a violation of your Fourth Amendment? And that's just that your is that it, your right to a speedy trial. Am I right about that? Yeah, different amendment, but I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, so, I mean, this is the thing. I, I'm a big believer that people should be empowered to make their own decisions. So I have no problem 
with with a person making an informed decision to plead guilty to something if that's what they want to do. And, and I and frankly, I think it's not my job to make that decision for my client. You know, I've always believed that it is my job to give my client as much information as I can, put them in the best position I can put them in so they can make informed choices. And the decision of whether you plead guilty or whether you fight your case is, is a very personal decision that different people come at differently. The problem that we have is that we're placing people in situations where they have to make that decision where they're not on equal footing with other people. So trying to make the decision about whether you should plead guilty to a crime from behind a jail cell versus from your living room is a very different decision, right? If you know that you're looking at sitting in jail for the next year and a half for something you didn't do, um, but you could plead guilty and get on, out on probation tomorrow and be back with your family and be back at your job and putting food on the table, you might make the very rational decision to plead guilty to something you didn't do because that's what's in the best interest of your family. And if you had the luxury of making that decision from your home, not from a cage, you might come to a different decision. And I think many people would. And that's one of the biggest pressures that exists within the system that forces innocent people to plead guilty or forces people to plead guilty where perhaps they had a good constitutional argument that their rights were violated, but they recognize fighting their case and going back to court um, is going to have consequences, even if eventually they're, they're found to not have done it, even if they're found to be innocent, you know? It's not like when you're found innocent, you know, they throw you a parade and they write you a check for all your missed time from work. It doesn't work like that. You get home and your family's been struggling for a year and a half and they've been trying to make ends meet without you and you've lost your job. So, you know, even the folks that, that are strong enough and have the ability to fight it out and wait they suffer immense consequences just getting to the point where they can be exonerated. I mean, Joyce is the, the extreme of that story, right? Um, you know, in, in some ways, there is a, a, a happy ending of redemption in her story, but it, it's, it's almost hard to say that when you think about the cost that it took to get there and what she had to lose. Well, do you, and you've mentioned it a few times, the, the impact that this has on someone that doesn't have resources or the, the poor. So do you think this is the way our system is set up is an unfair burden on the poor? Yes. I mean, I, I, I could say more about that, but there, there is no question that the way the criminal legal system works, um, you have advantages and opportunities and choices as a person of means that you mm -hmm. do not have as a person who's poor. And it, in, in my opinion, it transcends every aspect of the criminal legal system. And as a punitive system, what are your thoughts on, you know, there's, there's, there's newer idea that restorative justice, what are your thoughts on a, I mean, well, I, even capital punishment, you want to speak on any of that? Sure. I mean, and I guess I'll qualify to say these are, these are my personal thoughts, not the thoughts of the Tennessee <laughs> Innocence Project. But, you know, I'm, I'm very much against capital punishment for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't reduce the crime rate. It costs a lot of money. It's bad business for the state of Tennessee. But at the end of the day, it's just wrong. And, you know, that's my opinion. And, you know, I... I it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that we as a society make the decision to take someone's life because they've done something terrible. You know, we should be better than that. But, you know, again, that's just my opinion. And the system as a whole is a punitive system. Um, do you feel like there's a better way? Look, I think you need to think about who's locked up. You know, we, we hear a lot of these buzzwords like mass incarceration and things that people are talking about when they talk about, you know, social justice and reform. And I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of who the people are that we're locking up around the state and around the country. You know, our jails and prisons are not full of murderers and rapists. 
Our jails and prisons are full of poor kids from bad neighborhoods that got a drug charge and violated their probation and then went to jail. I mean, that's who's filling up our jails and prisons. When I was a public defender, when I worked a whole lot of cases, yes, I worked very serious cases, but the vast majority of people I represented were young kids from bad neighborhoods on drug charges. Mm. And at some point we need to make a decision about do we want to just continue to lock people up at a rate that exceeds what any other civilized country in the world is doing for crimes that if we took a different approach would reduce the recidivism and would just be better off. I mean, if you look at, I mean, look at the rates of recidivism for people that get locked up versus people that go into a drug treatment program. I mean, you can find any study you want, but the, the short answer to that question is, is that when we get people help and we treat things like addiction, we don't just put people in jails, then the crime rates go down. Um, and again, when you, you know, that's just better business, but it's also just the right thing to do. And, you know, if we could start to think about things that way, and if we could start to think more about, you know, big picture, is it a problem that we're locking as many people up in this country as we're locking up? Like, why why are we doing things that, that they're doing in countries that, that have atrocious human rights records? You know, why are, why are we doing those things? And we don't ask ourselves those questions a lot. And, you know, as you alluded to earlier, a, a lot of the folks that, that have the ability to make change and, and have, have means and power in this country aren't always affected by these issues. And if you're not affected by these issues and you're not thinking about these issues, then you're not working on solutions. All right. But as you mentioned earlier, it's, it all impacts us one way or the other. I think uh, that's, that's just important to understand. And, and that, this is more than just cases and crimes. This, this is people, it's people's stories, their humanity. Uh, and I, I think that's what's so heartbreaking about all of it is, you know, hearing Joyce's story again, the Anthony Ray Hinton story. It's just, it, you said, you know, it's, it's inspiring and there is a good ending to it, but so much heartbreak along the way uh, of the, ups and downs and the denials of the uh, appeals courts it's uh, almost seems like it was just too big of a hill to even climb um, but thankfully there's people like you and there's programs out there like the Tennessee Innocence Project that can make a difference and uh, man I, I applaud you and and your team for that and that's just uh, that's something that we need more of so um I really appreciate this, Jason. Is there is there anything else on your mind that you wanted to? Is there something that that we're missing that that you wanted to leave on that um, the listeners can take home with him? You know, I think it's really important that, and this is why Joyce's story I think is a really good example. Is that people should understand that this really can happen to anyone. You know, Joyce is the perfect example of somebody that had no interaction with the system, had never been in trouble, had a full-time job, was doing everything right. And she had three decades of her life and Charlie had three decades of his life taken away from them for something they didn't do. And when that happens, it should give everybody pause because, you know, sometimes you see wrongful convictions and, and they're all wrong and they're all terrible and they all need to be addressed. But sometimes you can kind of get your head around, look, this person had 10 prior arrests. The police jumped to conclusions when they shouldn't have. And that's how this person got caught up in it. Now that doesn't make it any more wrong, but you can at least logically figure out how they got here there and how it happened. When you see this happen to people like Joyce and Charlie, it, it, it makes your head hurt to figure out how they got there. And people need to recognize that, that the way our system works this is happening to people more than it should a lot. You know, there we just got to our a little over our 3000th exoneration that's been tracked by the National Registry of Exonerations. You know, there were I want to say there were 160 something people exonerated in the United States last year. That's a that's a bigger number than I think people realize and 
frankly, it's the tip of the iceberg because there are all sorts of reasons why we we can't really track how many people are wrongfully convicted. It, it's a bigger number than than we know. And, you know, I just want folks to think about that. And I want people to care about this issue and talk about this issue and tell their friends about this issue because this is something that at some point will affect you. It will affect your family. It will happen to someone you know. And that's not the time to start getting your head around these issues. You know, we need to be thinking about them now. We need to be thinking about how we can do things better in this country because we can do things better. And there are a lot of things we can do in our state to reduce the level of wrongful convictions and support the people in the organizations that are, are trying to do something about it. Yeah, and if someone wanted to support the Tennessee Innocence Project, how could they do that? Yeah, you can come to our website, which is tninnocence.org. Um, we, we're on social media. Uh, we also have a lot of events in the community, and I would encourage people to to keep an eye out for any events that we have coming up. You know, you had mentioned Anthony Ray Hinton earlier. Uh, later on this year, um, Anthony's coming to Memphis. We're doing an event with him at the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. And we always have uh, every November, we typically, that's our that's our big annual event. Um, last year, we had Amanda Knox there, and she spoke, and Barry Sheck was there. And we'll, we have, we do events at schools that are free and we'll, exonerees come and they tell you their story. And, and, and frankly, that's the most powerful thing you can hear. You know, that's, that's way more effective than, than me or one of the other lawyers just telling you about this stuff. You know, when you hear people's stories and you can see what happened to them and what they've been through and, and, and their grace and their, you know, uh, level of forgiveness that I wouldn't have. It's incredibly inspiring and, and frankly makes you want to think about this stuff and care about this stuff more. I want to thank Jason for both coming on here and doing such inspiring work. Be sure to check them out at tninnocence.org. And if you'd like to read the book that I mentioned, it's The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. I want to thank you, the listener, for being open-minded. I want to thank my beautiful wife, Lisa, for encouraging me to do this podcast. I want to thank my good friend, Andy Skibb, producer and editor, for making me sound a heck of a lot cooler than I am. You can follow along on Instagram at the white privilege guy. You can go to www.thewhiteprivilegeguy.com to find links to your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to like, rate, and follow. And be sure to check back every third Tuesday of the month for a new episode to release.